Sicklers, and we're really excited that God has brought recently uh, to our congregation uh, the Johnsons, Jeff and Roxanne Johnson. Many of you may know them. They've uh, been involved ministering uh, in the Muslim world for years, and they're with an organization locally here that provides support to, to the Bolins and the Heislers. So um, one of the things they are doing right now, Je- Jeff is actually in India right now, and Roxanne is going to go and meet him very shortly. They're visiting several teams of, of uh, missionaries, I guess you'd call them. They, they call them workers, but missionaries in that culture that are kind of trying to engage the local people, share the love of Jesus, and be a blessing to their communities. Um, so I, I met with Roxanne this week. She gave me an update. She wasn't able to be here today because of uh, just, for, actually for, because of the death of a, a, a real close loved one. Um, but she wanted me to let you know just kind of an update on how the Bullens and the Heislers are doing so that we can be praying for them and so that we can be praying for um, their, the, the Johnson's trip to, to visit them and support them. Uh, so Couple, couple updates. Uh, actually, we've got, I think we've got a slide here. At least we did. There it is. Um, so one of the praise, last time I think we had an update, we, we heard that the Heislers are really kind of their, their primary focus right now is to learn the language um, in North India. Um, they're in the state of Kashmir in the city of Srinagar. And uh, praise, praise God, they're, they're doing a great job. They're actually ahead of schedule. They've, they've got kind of a a schedule for how, how well they should be learning and things that they should know. And they're, they're doing a great job. They've got a great language helper there, um, and things are going really well. So we want to praise God for that. Um, we want to pray for, uh, we want to thank God and pray for continued political security. Last summer, you may remember, they went there and there was just rioting and craziness, and the Indian Army was occupying the streets, and there were shoot on sight orders, so they literally had to hide in their homes. Um, by God's grace this summer, that stuff hasn't, hasn't risen up again, and so that was a big concern for them. I want to pray that, that God continues uh, to allow there to be peace and stability in the region so that they can continue to meet people and share the good news of Jesus. Uh, so please continue to pray for that. Also, um, David's got this really neat relationship with uh, some Muslim men that are very committed to their faith, and he has opportunities to share um, what he believes and hear what they believe and really engage them. Um, we want to continue uh, to pray for those, those relationships with those particular individuals. And then lastly, uh, I mentioned this already, Jeff and Roxanne, who unfortunately aren't able to be with us, are going to go minister to the Bolins and the Heislers here in just a few weeks. And they have a lot of work to do, a lot of encouragement to offer, a lot of wisdom to impart, and we want to just pray that that goes really, really well. We actually decided as a church to send them instead of sending uh, a team of our elders like we've done in the past because they have so much more experience. Uh, there'll be a lot more help uh, to the Bolins and the Heislers. So let's, um, let's break into small groups and pray for them. Uh, just, just pray with the folks around you, kind of break up three, four, five, six people, introduce yourself real quick, and then pray for those requests. If you don't feel comfortable praying out loud, that's fine. Just let the people know. No worries there. But uh, we'll give you a few minutes to pray, and then um, we will move on with our service. So go ahead and go ahead and do that.
God, we thank you um, that we can come to you, and though we are thousands of miles away, uh, we can intercede on the behalf of our, our brothers and sisters, the Bullens and the Heislers, God, on behalf of their families and the work that you're doing um, in Kashmir. God, we pray for great fruit. Um, God, we pray for great strength for them, for protection. Um, Lord, we, we look forward to just their time with uh, the Johnsons, and we pray that that would be a great, um, just the start of a great relationship of mentoring and um, of just wisdom and, and speaking, just kind of help into that situation. God, there's so many questions, there's so many difficulties, and Lord, we pray that you would, you would bless them and, and bless that relationship. God, we thank you for uh, just the peace that they've experienced this summer. Um, Lord, we thank you for the language learning and how well that's going. We pray for just increased fruit there. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the, the relationship that David's been able to generate uh, with, with some of these guys that, that just so desperately want to please uh, God. They just don't know who you are. And so, God, we pray uh, for the power of your spirit to invade that situation and change their hearts. And we, we thank you. Uh, Lord, we're committed to continuing, uh, continually lifting them up. And Lord, let us be faithful uh, holders of the rope, so to speak, as they go down and they seek to, to really minister in this area of, of, of real need, Lord. So we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. My name is John. We're going to take a look at today's scripture passage in Genesis 3. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and stand with me. If you've got one of the black Bibles from the back, that's page two. All right, Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, 
I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thanks, John. All right. Have you ever wondered uh, why two people can experience almost the exact same thing and have completely different responses? Uh, let me illustrate. Let's take the, the not uncommon uh, reality of success in someone's life. I look at Tiger Woods and uh, Albert Pujols. Tiger Woods experienced success on the highest level in his sport, right? Probably the greatest golfer, at least last year, was the greatest golfer in, in the world and maybe greatest golfer ever. He had success, he had fame, he had money, he had power. Um, he had a family that, that he loved and supposedly and loved him. And, uh, and you, you've all experienced through the media, I'm sure, just kind of the unwinding of that, that sad story um, up until this point. And then, then you've got another man, Albert Pujols, first baseman for the St. Louis Cardinals, um, nine all-star appearances, NL MVP. He's, his, I believe he has more home runs at this point in his career than anyone in the history of baseball. Guy's, guy makes oodles of money, and is incredibly successful. Again, has a great family and, uh, and honors the Lord and honors his family. In fact, found, founded a foundation to promote kind of family values and unity um, in, in the world that, that we live in today. Why is that, that two people can experience the same thing and have completely different reactions? Let's look at another thing that people experience. Um, that's the reality of rejection. So we've got success on one hand, rejection on the other. Um, here, here are some men that experienced rejection. Um, let, me, let me see if you recognize any of them. Thomas Edison was told that he was too stupid to learn anything. Uh, Beethoven was told by his music teacher that as a composer, he was hopeless. And Walt Disney was fired from a newspaper job because he lacked imagination and had no original ideas. Those men experienced rejection and were able to rise up through it, and yet we, we see examples, uh, unfortunately, too often of people who experience rejection, and it, and it really leads to uh, some kind of d depression or, or despair. I have a friend in high school who was a brilliant guy, uh, graduated high school in two years, went on to MIT, experienced some hardship there, experienced some personal rejection and some academic rejection, and ended up taking his life, jumped out of a 14-story dorm building and ended his life. Why is it that some people 
respond one way, others respond the other, same circumstance. Another example might be an unintended pregnancy. Uh, Some people would choose to perhaps end that life, others would choose to bless it. Um, How about poverty? We, we hear stories all the time of people who rise up out of poverty and, and achieve great things. And others, the reality is, sadly, most who are born into poverty um, never, never kind of rise up out of it. Um, suffering is a, is a common reality that we all experience but have different, um, different responses to it. Why is it that some people just give up when encountering great suffering and others rise up above it? My wife and I had a great opportunity on Friday to go to what's called a peace feast. There's a ministry of one of the pastors at Redemption Church, and we remember Redemption Church is four campuses, one church four campuses across the valley. Um, the Arcadia campus of Redemption Church is really engaged ministering to refugees in uh, South Phoenix. I don't, don't know if you know this. I didn't know this until a few months ago, but there's a huge refugee population in South Phoenix. And one of the people groups they're working with is called the Somali Bantu people. Um, there are people that experience tremendous suffering and persecution in their home country of Somalia. Um, literally walked thousands of miles to Kenya to try to, to try to find relief and ended up applying for, um, for citizenship here, applying for refugee status, and we're able to come here. We're, we're helping those people rebuild. Why is it that when they experience pain, they fight, other people experience pain and give up? And then lastly, and this is un- sadly as well a common occurrence in our society, uh, the death of a loved one can affect people in so many different ways. Why is it that maybe a family loses a child and some, some, uh, some parents are, are driven apart, others are driven more closely together? Um, well, the, the answer to, to the question of why is it that we can experience the same circumstances and have different outcomes, interestingly enough, I would argue, is doctrine. Now, that might sound strange to you. Doctrine seems like a word that, you know, theologians study in, in ivory tower universities. But doctrine simply means teaching. It's, it's the system. It's the idea of the way that you answer life's deep questions. And all of these um, circumstances create a lot of questions in our minds. And the, the doctrine that we hold, the, the answers that we um, hold to, uh, to, to the questions that, that arise from these situations kind of make us who we are. Uh, questions like, who am I? What is the point? When will things change? Where are we going? Why are things the way they are? And how can we change? Those, those questions form us deeply, more deeply than our circumstances do. And it's really important. Th- those questions, as they're answered together it, as a whole, it's called your worldview. And everyone has a worldview. They're not all the same. They're oftentimes formed by culture, sometimes formed by religious beliefs. But everyone has a worldview that determines how you respond to any situation that life throws at you. And that's really critical. So we're going to talk today, and one of the reasons I'm excited about the doctrine series that we're in as Redemption Church is we're trying to build a biblical worldview, a worldview that explains the world that we see and offers hope and meaning and answers those deep questions of who we are, what this is all about, and where we're headed. So today, or excuse me, let's, let's review just quickly where we've been so far. We've had four weeks so far. First, we looked at um, the, the issue of who, who is God, 
right? So it's a good place to start when you're trying to explain everything around you. We asked, we asked who is this God? Well, we looked at he, and, and understood that he is an uh, eternal God, eternally existing in three distinct persons, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We looked at the reality that God is loving himself perfectly, pouring himself out in worship, in beautiful relationship for all of eternity. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything, and yet he creates uh, the second week, we looked at the, the reality that that God has made himself known. He reveals himself in two primary ways. Uh, he reveals himself through what he has made, through creation. Psalm 19 talks about general revelation. All people have a general knowledge of God because he's put a knowledge of himself in their hearts and he's written the truth of his greatness in creation. And then secondly, we know, we know about God specifically through his word through the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Um, God revealed himself in a powerful way there and answers a lot of the, fills in a lot of the gaps that are not filled in through general revelation. So we, we learned about who God is. We learned about the reality that he communicates with us and to us. And then we looked at the reality that that God created. So everything that we experience was created by God. Um, that, that's a beautiful truth, and it informs the way that we deal with creation. And we understand that we are stewards of creation. We're not the creators of creation. And we are not to, 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 um, to destroy it, but to steward it and protect it and love it the way that God has, um, has created it. And then lastly, uh, we saw last week, Vince shared that, that we are created in the image of God. And this begins to really answer some deep questions about who we are personally, um, why we are the way we are, why we, why we exist um, and, and do some of the things that we do. He talked about this fact that we're, we're to be mirrors reflecting back the image of God, reflecting back that, that relationship that he had with himself and perfect love for all of creation. So we've got this great... Um, starting block of doctrine, right, that begins to explain and, and inform our worldview. But today I want to talk about something um, that, that really is kind of the linchpin in this whole worldview deal. If you're going to try to come at the world and answer some of these questions or relate to really anyone or anything that you see without this piece of information, without what we're going to talk about today, you'll be hopelessly lost. None of it will make any sense. Um, we're going to talk today about uh, the reality of the fall. And this is something, this is a reality that you experience on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. You experience this personally. You experience this in your relationships with other people. You experience this in your relationship with society and with creation at large. Um, so I'm excited about what God's going to do here um, as we look at um, this, this sad reality, I, I appreciate Luke asking me to speak on this. I think he knows this is something that I know a lot about, the reality of, of sin and the fall. He feels that I'm uh, particularly equipped to share with you on this topic. So um, I, I would agree with him. So that's good. Uh, we're going to look today through, through this passage of Genesis 3 at, at four uh, distortions or four areas of brokenness that sin affected when uh, Adam and Eve sinned, when, when sin entered the world and the human race, how does this affect us? And I think you'll find it's pretty comprehensive, and my, my hope is that it will be pretty practical as well. So I like props. I always get excited when Luke uses the whiteboard, so I'm going to follow in, in tow and try to do some drawing here. Um, we're going to look at four concentric circles. 
And the first circle relates to creation, the reality that sin uh, came into the world and affected creation. Now, at each of these four areas, we're going to look at the curse. We're going to look at the effects then, at that moment in the garden, what, what happened immediately as a result of, of this area of life being broken, and then what happened today, the effects today. So the curse, the effects then, and the effects today. Um, the curse related to creation is found in, in Genesis chapter 3, and if you have that passage open, we'll be there a lot, so you can just keep your finger in there. Uh, starting in verse 17. And God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. The curse, work is now painful. It's, it's toil. There are thistles um, and thorns that Adam's going to have to battle. The immediate effect of the reality that creation is broken is that death entered into the garden for the first time. God himself killed an animal and clothed Adam and Eve with its skins. This was kind of a foretaste or a foreshadowing of the reality that this first area of life, this first sphere, um, creation has been broken as a result of sin. The effects today uh, are seen plainly in, in, all, the, in all the evils that, 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 I mean, that we observe around us. Weeds would be an effect of the fall. How many of you like weeds? You like weeding, getting out in your garden, pulling out weeds? Not fun. We've got this crabgrass around our grass border that doesn't matter what you do. It's just there plaguing you. So uh, that's, a, that's an effect of the fall. Drought, fire, pestilence, the whole system that God created, this perfect system that he made has been distorted and broken. Um, we have a garden in our house, and I, lo- I love this garden. I-, I can't believe I'm actually outdoors, like, working, cultivating a little bit. Um, I-, I never thought I would. I've always kind of, everywhere we've moved, I wanted a small yard and fake grass and, you know, things that I won't have to, I won't have to mess with. But we have this garden. It's really fun. We're growing tomatoes and uh, and spices and herbs and peppers. And we actually grew some corn, which was really cool. Um, well, and, and so and grapes, grapes grow out here, which is cool. Um, anyway, our first, our first piece of fruit that we got to harvest was a tomato about a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago. And I was really excited about it. We watched it through our window. We can see it every morning when we wake up. We watched it kind of grow and then turn, you know, yellow and then orange and then a nice, nice juicy red. And I love a good tomato, especially on a sandwich. Chrissy makes the best sandwiches in the world. Um, so I went out, I, I picked the tomato, and I looked at it, and I turned it around, and the back of the tomato was all eaten, and whatever had eaten it was still in it. Yeah, and, and that just reminded me that, that this is a broken creation. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Now, I did cut out the bad stuff and eat the rest of it, but, um, but it wasn't, you know, that's not how, that's not how God intended it. Um, we, see, we hear of tornadoes, floods, earthquakes, tsunamis. There's toil in work, right? That's part of the curse of this first distortion. Um, one of the ways that we, a uh, famine, one of the ways that we um, describe the reality of a broken creation to our kids is when we're driving down the road and we see 
especially in Queen Creek, everything's dead, right? So this is like the season right before all the tumbleweeds actually like get blown out of the ground. So now all the bushes are just dead, like waiting to do what they do before they start just rolling around our, our town. Um, another, another way we see it is in, in roadkill. That might seem funny, but it reminds us very quickly of the reality that our world is broken. There's death around us. So we see that, and my, my kids ask, what's that, Daddy? And I explain, that's not the way God intended things to be. Um, it reminds us of the reality that there's death in this world, um, and, and that's an effect of, of sin, of Adam's original sin. Uh, Romans chapter 8, let's look at this right here, um, says the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This informs our worldview when we look at creation and how we're supposed to interact with it. And we look at why, why do we talk about, you know, what, what's this deal about global warming and pollution and all these things? It gives us a category to begin to process and understand these things. Um, so that's the first distortion, the reality that uh, our relationship to creation is broken. Uh, the second distortion, second circle, says that our, uh, our relationship with each other our relationship to each other has been broken. The curse uh, related to that point is found in Genesis 3, verse 16. God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. We see two of the most critical relationships in all of humanity are now distorted. They're broken. There's pain in the parent-child relationship and pain in the husband-wife relationship. Interestingly enough, the husband-wife relationship was the relationship that the closest and most dear um, to the reality of who God is. And, and one, of the, one of the greatest mirrors for reflecting his glory was that husband-wife relationship, right? We read about that other places in Scripture that we're supposed to um, relate to one another and be one and united, much like the Trinity is united in love for each other. Excuse me. So now there's broken, brokenness in that relationship. Uh, we see this reality of broken human relationships right away in the text. We see that in, in chapter, or excuse me, in verse 12, Adam, when he's confronted by God on what he just did, the sin he committed, what does he do? He blames his wife. Um, that's not, a, I'm sure, not something that happens in, to, anyone, to any of you in here. Um, but, but the reality is that, that Adam broke that trust. He broke that, that, um, that unity immediately, right then, right after sin entered the world. Um, you see that effect. So, uh, and then the effects today are, it's just kind of a ripple effect. Like when you drop a stone into a, into a creek and it just ripples out. You can see brokenness all around you. Uh, I think divorce is a great example of the reality of, of brokenness um, in our world amongst one another. How many of you have either experienced divorce personally or seen it in your family, know someone close to you that's experienced divorce? Yeah, yeah, probably, I, I would think most of us. Um, a, another example of broken relationships between humans would be the reality of abuse. 
There's a lot of abuse in our culture and around the world. Um, God did not intend for people to relate to one another in that way. Corruption. How about this Blagojevich character in Illinois? Have you been following this dude? The guy tried to sell, uh, he was former governor of Illinois, tried to sell President Obama's vacated Senate seat when he got elected to, to, the, to the presidency. Pretty kind of invent, inventive there. Uh, but he just got, just got convicted for, for, uh, for corruption. And unfortunately, there's, there's a whole lot of that uh, that goes on. Um, something that, that has roots, you know, in, in shame on our country is uh, our roots in slavery and racism. That, that's an effect of the fall of brokenness in human relationships. And then sexual perversion. There's a multi-billion dollar industry that goes on that's very rarely talked about. Um, it, pornography, uh, prostitution, and sex slave trade. It's, all, it's, it's, it's a complete uh, perversion and distortion of the way that we're supposed to relate to one another, the way God had originally designed. Sin has invaded that. And, and ultimately, um, that's seen in the reality of death. Um, man kills man now. That was never a part of the original plan. Jesus talks a lot about this, in fact, because he knows that kind of murder is, it has, has implications to all these other distortions. It's kind of, it's kind of uh, the way that you can kind of summarize all that. Um, quarreling, family dissension, gossip, all those things are results of, of the fall and, and this, this distortion of the way that we relate to each other. Romans 1 summarizes this. Um, in Romans chapter 1, Paul is kind of explaining the, uh, the downfall of, of, the human, of humankind as a result of sin. And he says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, and disobedient to parents. How many of you are feeling uplifted so far in this message? This is uh, not necessarily feeling like a motivational speaker today, but, um, but that's reality. And how many of those things on that list relate to our relationship with one another? A lot of them. Uh, so that's the second distortion. The third distortion, um, the third circle on our little uh, chart here, says that not only do we experience brokenness in creation and with each other, we experience it with ourselves. Our relationship with self has been distorted as a result of the fall. Uh, we see this in, in two places, actually, uh, related to the curse uh, in, in Genesis 2.17, God, when he's warning Adam, he says, don't do this or you're going to die. You will surely die. And then at the end of chapter 3, John did a great job reading it in verse 19. He says, for, uh, God says, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Death is not part of the original plan as it relates to us as, as humans. We have begun to die um, Physically, uh, indeed, our bodies are breaking down. Isn't this amazing? When God originally designed creation, our bodies were not designed to break down and to decompose. But now there's, there's an end to, to uh, our physical bodies because of uh, the fall. Um, the effects at, at that time uh, to, to this reality of the brokenness of the self-relationship is seen most clearly in, in the shame that Adam and Eve felt when they ate the fruit. They had never experienced shame before, and, and when they took that fruit, when they, when they broke God's law, their inner person, their, 
psychological self or uh, their spirit was experiencing shame. Um, The effects today include depression, uh, suicide, addiction, discontentment, um, lust, anger, unforgiveness, personal suffering, and again, death. And death is going to be kind of the unifying theme that you see as a result of each, in each of these categories. Uh, Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus says this. He says, from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is countercultural. Talk about worldview. This is not the worldview that our, that our culture holds uh, primarily. Most of, most of what we're told is that we're a product of our circumstances, but we established already that many people go through the same circumstances and have completely different outcomes. Um, Jesus is telling us that the brokenness lives within our hearts, um, that sin distorted not only our relationship with creation and others, but our relationship with our own self. And then lastly, um, the, the final circle is that sin distorted our relationship with God. This is um, perhaps most significant because at, at our deepest level, we were created for um, a communion and relationship with God himself, and now that's broken. Uh, we see uh, the curse uh, related to this point, at the end of, of Genesis chapter 3, John, John read how God casts Adam and Eve out of the garden. And there are a number of reasons for that, but, but the reality is now they are separated from the, the source of life and the one whom they were created um, to find joy and happiness and peace and hope in. Um, so the effect immediately, you can see this brokenness in their relationship with God immediately when, when again, they, they cover themselves and they hide from God because they're afraid. Fear never existed before, uh, before sin. And so one of the, the, first, the first realities of this, this distorted relationship with God is seen in the fact that they were afraid, that they hid from his presence and experienced shame. Our effects today, um, we, we experience this. It, it might not be as obvious as some of the other points, but we experience separation from God's presence today. Uh, perhaps you have sinned and felt guilty, and instead of running to God for forgiveness and healing, you run away from him. And you separate yourself and you, you hide because you, um, you're, you, if you do that, you're kind of living out the reality of a broken relationship with God. Um, maybe you've experienced an emptiness in your heart that nothing can seem to fill. I feel like Hollywood is like filled with people that are like billboards proclaiming the reality that there's something missing, that money, sex, fame, power, you name it, just can't fill. Even people with just great families that love their kids and love their wives and have good jobs, there's a, there's a discontented frustration in their hearts. Um, there's, there's a hole. There's something missing that, that can't be filled by, by anything but God. Um, Romans 1 says that, that God is, is judging us by withdrawing his presence. And, uh, and that's, kind of a form, that's a form of wrath and ultimately leads to death, spiritual death is the result of this distortion. Uh, he, uh, excuse me, uh, Ephesians 2 uh, talks about this reality that we were dead spiritually. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and what you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we have death spiritually, and Scripture is very clear. Our spirits, apart from God, have died. When God told Adam, you eat this, you're going to die, that happened immediately. And the reality, the effects of that death kind of pushed itself out into all other areas of life. Now, I want to kind of hang out just just briefly on um, the reality of this pervasiveness of death. And that's not something that's very fun to talk about. In fact, as a society, we don't don't like to talk about death. We don't like to acknowledge death. Um, The statistics on death are pretty compelling. Um, Almost everyone, well, everyone in this room is going to experience it in some shape or form. Um, but, But we like to hide from it. We put those that are close to death uh, off to the side, we, uh, we, we put them in, in special places to be cared for people, by people that we pay so that we don't have to think about it. Um, we have hospitals for, for the dead and the dying and, uh, that, that kind of neatly keep that tucked away and, and clean that up so we don't have to look at it. I, I was driving by um, the other day, I was on my way home coming down Ellsworth and just missed a huge accident actually heard it happen right as I drove by and looked in my rearview mirror and it was, there was chaos, right? There was literally pieces of cars and glass flying everywhere. Well, I was shocked. I, I drove back. I was on my way home for lunch. I drove back an hour later and it was totally gone, completely cleaned up. We want to sweep that away. We don't want to talk about it. You know, we don't go to parties and talk about death very much. And yet, it's, it's probably the most universal, maybe other than, than pain, um, the most universal experience of, of, of humankind. Um, in 1973, Ernest Becker wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called The Denial of Death. And he really, uh, he did a lot to kind of shape the culture in this work. And I think he, he kind of nailed, he nailed something on the head. Um, according to the New York Free Press, this is the, the main thesis of the book, is that the fear of death haunts the human animal like nothing else. He says, it's a mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by it denying in some way that it is the final destiny of men. And this really lines up perfectly with what Hebrews 2 says. Do we have that on the, on the screen? We do. Um, it says that basically the idea is that, uh, that through fear of death, we are subject to lifelong slavery. So we're kind of picking up in the middle of an idea, but I just wanted to grab that point out of Hebrews 2, that, that it, it says that th- through the fear of death, we're, we're enslaved. So our problem, the, the four distortions that we experience, um, all result in death, and, and, and the way that we experience these in our lives oftentimes is because we're enslaved to this fear of dying. Uh, John Piper has this quote. I believe we have that as well. He says, the book of Hebrews as well as Becker both say that the fear of death produces a pervasive, lifelong bondage, even when we don't realize it. Fear is haunting our choices, making us cautious, wary, restrained, confined, narrow, tight, robbing us of risk and adventure and dreams without our even knowing it. Fear of death is a slave master, binding us with invisible ropes, confining us to small, safe, innocuous, self-centered ways of life. All right, now I'm really lifting us up here. Um, But these are important things because they're reality, and, and they explain the things that we experience in our hearts and in our lives on a daily basis. So if death is, is kind of uh, 
the fear of death and the reality of death is, is maybe where all these other vices are arising from. Why, where did this death thing come from? Romans 5 says this, uh, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This verse says that the root cause, the root issue, isn't even death itself. It goes deeper than that. It's the reality of sin. It's the reality of brokenness in the world. And it's really important to identify sin as the reason for the brokenness that we see. Especially in our society, that, that, that concept of sin to many people feels like um, a little dated, maybe a little archaic or ov- overly religious. But if we, if we misdiagnose the problem, we can offer no solution, at least no solution that really helps. Um, we're often tempted, especially, um, I don't know about you, but in our life we see this a lot. We're often tempted to address the symptoms rather than the problem. This is easy to do. Uh, we've got four kids, and when our kids get sick, they get irritable, and uh, they don't sleep very well, and they get a fever. And oftentimes you, you, you can be tempted to just treat kind of the, the way they feel so that they're easier to deal with rather than treat the underlying issue of the infection. You know, pop some Tylenol or some Benadryl in them, give them a few minutes and send them off to bed. It's all good. Um, well, that, that doesn't always fix the problem, right? Um, another way that we focus on symptoms and not the problem is, uh, is discord in the family. Um, people feel like separation or divorce will fix the problem, um, but it doesn't because the problem isn't that they're too close, right? Married people are close together all the time. Does, they, don't, they don't all have the same problems. It, it, uh, it, the, the problem is that, that repentance needs to happen. People need to acknowledge their issues, repent, and move forward. But we try to fix, we try to treat the symptoms by separation or divorce. Another way we try to treat the symptoms is, is in uh, the economic challenges that we experience. And this is something we've been trying to treat for uh, quite a few years now in this country. Um, one, of, one of the theories a few years back was that there just isn't enough money out there. Right? We're, we're, all, we're all locked up. Nobody's spending money. So let's just give everybody more money. That'll fix the economy, right? So how many of you got a check in the mail a few years ago? Um, I know I did. I think you all did. We, we all got a check in the mail from the Bush administration saying, here's, here's the answer to your problems. Spend this, and, that, and we're smooth sailing from now. Did that fix anything? No, at least not in my life. Um, it, it didn't. And it, because the reality is the problem isn't the money supply. There's plenty of money. The problem is productivity, and this is kind of a fun thing I got to study in business school. But um, the, dri- the engine that drives economic growth is productivity. If you can't stimulate more people to start businesses and create inventions and do new things, you aren't going to fix the problem. And then lastly, um, we, we see this in society at large. We have a lot of problems that we're trying to address in society. And every election cycle every time, every four years, we, we start hearing about how the new candidate is going to implement all these changes and is going to f- fix all the problems that we see. Uh, we run to a political savior rather than addressing the issue, which is our own, um, our own brokenness, right? Society is, all society is, is a conglomerate of people. Um, and, uh, and personal accountability is, is, this, is the answer to those things. 
And yet every, everybody likes to feel entitled and feels like it's someone else's issue. So we, we try to treat it with, with a political savior. We try to treat the symptoms rather than the problem. Um, so it's important to, to understand um, our, our big problem is sin. And uh, in, in, in your big problem is sin. My big problem is sin. This isn't just a philosophical general discussion. It's a personal discussion. Sin lives within all of us as a result of the fall. So let's look at this sin thing. Let's, let's try to learn a little bit more about it. Let's, learn, let's try to look at where did it come from? How, how did it start? I want to look at Isaiah 14. Um, this is one of these kind of mysterious but really interesting passages in Scripture that talk about um, the world before uh, the fall, and, and it, this, this, this kind of relates to um, how Satan became Satan. So um, Isaiah is talking here. He says, how, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Lucifer, this great angel that that God created as part of his good creation, um, had a a fatal flaw and uh, desired to exalt himself to be like God. The initial sin, the sin before the, what we call the fall with Adam and Eve in the garden, the, the first fall was, this, was the result of trying to exalt yourself to be like God. Now let's look at Genesis chapter 3. What did we read the first sin in humanity was? Well, Lucifer, this Satan, this guy who just fell in the way that we just looked at in verse, three, uh, verse 5 of chapter 3, tempts Adam and Eve, or excuse me, tempts Eve this way. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. What's his temptation? Make yourself like God. Exalt yourself. Same thing that he did. Same fall that he experienced. They were tempted to to exalt themselves like God. Now, I think this is interesting, uh, because in Genesis chapter 2, we read that Adam and Eve were already like God. They didn't need to exalt themselves. God had already made them in his image to reflect his glory. What a sad day that they tried to take their exaltation, their, their glory, whatever that is in their own hands, try to make themselves like God and not realize the blessing that they had already received in being made in his image. So sin is uh, the problem. It's the reason for all that we experience, all the death and pain and brokenness in this world And if sin is the problem, there's only one solution. If you read the news or you listen to the political campaigns or you go to school or or whatever it is, everyone's offering solutions to the problems that we see. But the reality is the correct diagnosis is sin. And the only solution, the only one in all the universe who can deal with the problem of sin is Jesus Christ, God's own son. This is good news, and it's, it's important to know that Jesus is the answer, and Jesus is your answer. Jesus is my answer, the answer that deals with the reality of sin. In Genesis 3.15, God gives us hope, and he gives us a clue into this truth right in the middle of cursing man and, and explaining what it is that they've done. God gives hope. 
he says this. He's talking um, to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first, uh, theologians call this the first gospel. There's kind of this cryptic, veiled prophecy that, that down the line, somewhere, one of Eve's descendants will crush the head of the serpent. He's going to bruise his heel, but, but this guy's going to crush his head. And as we see um, the reality of the story of Scripture played out throughout time, it, it comes into focus that this is a prophecy of Jesus, that he's coming uh, to destroy the one that brought evil and brokenness and shame into our lives, and he's going to destroy the power of death. Um, and this is, this is really cool. When we look at the way that sin entered the world through this temptation to exalt yourself like God, when Jesus was tempted, he, uh, he, when he was tempted to exalt himself, he humbled himself. Philippians 2 said that even though he was, he was an equal with God, he was in the very image of God, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't fight for his own glory, but he humbled himself. He took on the, 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 the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He succeeded where we failed. Um, we see that in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we could be the righteousness of God. See, we have a, a deep sin problem. And it's not, it's not like, well, I have sins like maybe, maybe pornography is a sin of yours. And maybe you can discipline yourself and work really hard and stop looking at pornography. You, you may have rid yourself of that sin, but you haven't addressed your problem of, of sin deep down. Um, the only way that that can be done is through Jesus Christ, who became sin on our behalf. He took our sin in his body. He died um, in our place to rid us of that sin. First uh, Peter 2 says, he bore our sins in his body. He literally took them onto himself so that we could be freed. Um, our old self was crucified with him so that we'll no longer be slaves to sin. We read about how the fear of death enslaves man. We no longer have to fear death. Jesus says that those who trust in him will never taste death. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, the reality is that as a believer, if you trust in Jesus, if his words are true, then, then the moment you get on death's door, God takes you into his presence. You never taste death. You, you might get really, really close, but you never taste it. Death has no power over you if you understand this and if you think through this worldview, if you, re, if you think according to the reality of, of what Scripture teaches. The power of death is defeated. 1 Corinthians 15 talks us through that. Um, one day when we are risen and, and reigning with the Lord, we'll be able to say, death, there's no sting. There's no victory in you. Jesus Christ is the victor. And then uh, Galatians 3 tells us that Christ removed the curse. All right, so we looked at kind of the fourfold curse, result of our sin. Galatians 3 says that he's removed that. Well, so what? Why, why, why does all this matter? Um, here, let's look at uh, Colossians 1 as I wrap up here. Um, this says, and he, speaking of Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in, that everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is critical. We, we have to realize that the salvation that Jesus accomplished on the cross isn't only a personal and individual salvation, but he is reconciling and will reconcile to himself all things. Sin affected all areas of life. Jesus' work will, will push out and repair all the brokenness um, that we see in our world around us. That's our hope. That's what that verse alludes to. Um, and so what we want to do, what I want to encourage you as kind of a, a practical application of this reality is I want to encourage you to start thinking this way. Romans 12 teaches us we should renew our minds with this new way of thinking so that we're not conformed to the pattern of this world. So I want you to practice seeing the things, that, the evidences of sin, the brokenness that you encounter in your, in your world, in, in your life this week. I want you to practice seeing them through this lens. I want you to see them through the reality of which circle is it that, that I'm experiencing at, you know, at the moment? Which, which circle of brokenness is this and how has Jesus become the solution, the answer to that? So I'll walk you through my, uh, my day tomorrow real quick and show you kind of what I mean. Um, tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up and uh, hopefully wake up at 6 o'clock and get some time uh, reading God's word. At 7, my kids will come upstairs. We've made it very clear that if they come up before 7 o'clock, it is not a good thing. So we have a little sticker on the clock that tells them when this number turns to a 7, you're allowed to come up, and they follow that pretty well. They'll come up in about mm, 10, 15 minutes at the longest. Um, there will, a fight will probably break out, right? It'll be somebody took someone's toy or somebody looked at someone funny or got in their way or bumped into me or something like that. And, uh, and we'll see the reality of, of brokenness in our world. Um, we'll see the reality that, that um, sin distorted our relationship with each other. And so I, I want, if you have that experience, I want you to, to recognize that as a result of sin, and I want you to see Jesus as a solution. How is Jesus the solution to that? Well, uh, Scripture tells us that he didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's our prayer and our belief that as, our, as my children trust in Jesus, he will begin to conform their hearts to the, to the heart of his, the heart of a servant, and they will be able to lay down their rights and serve, serve each other and serve one another. I'll be able to talk to them about that. Uh, another example. So, so as they are fighting, I will probably get impatient and maybe angry. Um, and that will reveal the reality that my relationship with self is destroyed. Um, and I will look to Jesus and I will look to the reality of his patience with me and his forgiveness of me when I've sinned to find strength and hope and see, that how, he, see how he, he mends that brokenness. Um, later on in the day, probably after I have a really good lunch, um, if I don't have a lunch meeting, I go home and Christy always feeds me really well. I love my wife. Um, I, I probably about an hour after that, I'm going to get really tired and I'm going to be lazy and I'm going to feel like I want to just stretch out on those nice couches we have in our office that Melissa furnished for us. And I'm going to want to take a nap. Uh, but I won't. And I will recognize that, um, that I'm, my relationship with creation is broken, that work is toil, and it's hard. And I will remember that Jesus gives rest. Jesus offers us true rest, and I can rest in him. One day I will rest perfectly. Now I rest imperfectly, but I'll ask for his strength and see him as the, the fulfillment and the answer to that brokenness. And then lastly, when I get home, I'm sure I'll stub my toe or hit my head or Benjamin will hit me where it counts or something. Every, every night I manage to get hurt somehow. Um, and I'll, I'll be confronted with the reality of physical pain. 
The reality that um, this world is broken and we experience pain. And I will, re- I will hopefully remember, as I'm trying to renew my mind, that Jesus experienced great pain to deliver us from pain. And Scripture tells us that this pain, the pain that we experience now, be it, be it very, very big or, you know, like, like cancer or terminal illness or very minimal like a stub toe, the, the Scripture calls all of that light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. So I can see Jesus as the fulfillment and the, the solution to the brokenness of pain in our world. So I want to encourage you to do that um, as you go throughout your day um, Notice the things that are broken, the things that bother you in yourself and around you in the society at large, and, and try, to, try to convince, or not convince, try to preach to yourself or, or try to see how Jesus is the solution. He's the answer to all of that brokenness. Colossians 1 tells us he's, he's mending and restoring all things to himself. Let's try to do that this week. Um, let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for the reality that you are um, our great answer, our great solution to this, to this universal problem of evil and pain. God's sin has invaded and infected every area of our life. It's broken creation. It's broken our relationship uh, with each other. Um, it's led to brokenness in our own lives personally, and it's led to uh, a broken and severed relationship with you. God, we pray that you would restore um, those relationships, each one. God, we pray that we would look to you for the hope that you truly are. And we pray that we would, um, we would build our worldview, our view of everything that we experience on the reality of your word, that it would be a firm foundation, and God, that, that you would um, be the hero that you are in this story in our lives. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.